Picture this. You are seeing Devin, a 56-year-old man with a history of long-standing hypertension, who presents to your clinic with difficulty breathing and swelling in his legs. I can barely walk to my truck anymore because my legs are so heavy and swollen. I can't catch my breath just trying to walk from the parking lot in here today, he says. He tells you that he stopped taking his water pills because he lost his job and cannot afford medications. On exam, his heart rate is 96 beats per minute and regular, blood pressure is 152 over 94 millimeters of mercury, and respiratory rate is 22 per minute. He has 2-plus pitting edema in his lower extremities and bilateral lower lobe crackles on lung exam. What treatment should Devin receive to target his physiologic derangement? Consider as you listen. Welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Laurel Toft, bringing cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Describe the causes and types of cardiac hypertrophy. 2. Explain the pattern of sarcomeres which leads to concentric and eccentric cardiac hypertrophy and how each leads to clinical heart failure. 3. Outline the causes and consequences of ischemic heart injury. 4. Describe the body's responses to heart failure, including activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and the sympathetic nervous system. And 5. Explain the changes that occur to pressure volume loops in patients with acute systolic and diastolic heart failure. Part 1. What causes heart failure? Heart failure is a clinical syndrome in which an inefficiency of heart function, either the squeezing systolic function or the relaxing diastolic function, leads to backup of fluid and pressure in the intravascular and eventually extravascular spaces. While you'll often hear the term heart failure in reference to systolic dysfunction, it's important to remember that around 50% of cases of clinical heart failure are actually due to diastolic dysfunction. The heart wall, or myocardium, is a muscle, and we will focus our discussion on the dysfunction of the cardiac myocytes, the powerhouse muscle cells found in the myocardium. These cells collectively perform the hard work of making the heart contract, relax, and pump blood. The myocytes respond to injury in several ways, but here we will focus on two primary responses, hypertrophy and remodeling after ischemic injury. These two mechanisms account for almost all heart failure cases. Part 2. What is the pathophysiology of myocardial hypertrophy? An increase in myocyte size is called hypertrophy. An increase in the number of myocytes is called hyperplasia. While some hyperplasia may occur in heart disease, hypertrophy is far and away the most common cause of cardiac enlargement. Now remember, the sarcomere is a subunit of the myocyte, and in systolic heart failure, there is an increase in the number of sarcomeres, that basic contractile unit for cardiac myocytes. This increased number of sarcomeres results in two different types of cardiac hypertrophy, concentric and eccentric. You can think of concentric as occurring due to pressure overload and eccentric due to volume overload. First, concentric hypertrophy. This occurs under high-pressure conditions like hypertension, aortic stenosis, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Concentric hypertrophy, as we said, usually results from increased pressure in the ventricle. The most common etiology is increased LV afterload, meaning the pressure against which the ventricle must pump during systole. 
In response to chronic exposure to the increased afterload, the heart increases the width of the ventricular walls to compensate. This is termed left ventricular hypertrophy. In concentric hypertrophy, the heart muscle adds parallel or side-by-side -side sarcomeres to existing sarcomeres, which leads to an increase in the size of the myocytes and overall a thicker myocardial wall. In contrast, eccentric hypertrophy adds sarcomeres in series, or end-to-end, -end, leading to a thinner, dilated ventricular wall. This process is more commonly termed ventricular dilation, and the heart appears almost like a balloon. Eccentric hypertrophy can sometimes be seen in normal situations, like the hearts of highly conditioned athletes, but it's often seen in diseases where there is a marked volume increase in the ventricles. Eccentric hypertrophy occurs either due to that volume overload or could be due to injury to the myocytes. Volume overload occurs in mitral or aortic valve regurgitation. In these cases, the left ventricle must expel not only the normal blood coming back from the lungs, but also the extra blood that regurgitates back into the left ventricle because of the incompetent valves. Volume overload can also occur in end-stage kidney disease. Myocyte injury, the other mechanism leading to eccentric hypertrophy, is discussed in greater depth in the dilated cardiomyopathy brick. But for our purposes, the most common causes are ischemia, viral infection, myocarditis, alcohol, and some drugs like the chemotherapy agent doxorubicin. So what are the consequences of hypertrophy? Well, cardiac hypertrophy is the heart's way of adapting to pressure and volume overload. Hypertrophy initially helps enhance the contractility of the heart, but over time, these changes have detrimental effects. This is because cardiac hypertrophy is accompanied by development of decreased myocyte perfusion through two primary mechanisms. First, there is a decrease in capillary density because new blood vessels do not increase along with the hypertrophied myocytes. And second, compression of the arteries occurs by the extra cardiac mass, reducing oxygen delivery to the myocardial tissue. So hypertrophy can lead to ischemic injury to the heart. Let's pause to see if you got that. What is the most common cause of concentric cardiac hypertrophy? Hypertension is the most common cause of concentric cardiac hypertrophy. Part three, what is the pathophysiology of ischemic heart injury? Ischemic heart disease or low oxygen delivery to the heart is the most common cause of heart failure. Necrosis of myocytes and resultant heart failure can occur not just after a myocardial infarction, but also after chronic ischemic injury. Heterogeneous cardiac remodeling occurs to replace the dead myocytes. The tissue deposited during this remodeling is disorganized, with fibrosis replacing muscle. Both diastolic and systolic dysfunction can result. In diastolic dysfunction, the extra disorganized tissue impedes filling and ventricular relaxation. In other words, it makes the heart stiff and non-compliant. These effects impair diastolic ventricular filling, which reduces the end diastolic volume, or EDV, and lowers the stroke volume, SV, and thereby the cardiac output. In systolic dysfunction, the disordered cellular architecture impairs sarcomere coordination. This reduces the overall effectiveness of ventricular contraction during systole. As a result, blood does not move forward efficiently, meaning some of it pools in the ventricular chamber. Extraventricular pressure from that pooling blood further stimulates the heterogeneous cardiac remodeling process. 
Together, these factors worsen myocardial function, leading to decreased contractility, decreased stroke volume, and decreased cardiac output. Quiz time! How does cardiac hypertrophy lead to myocyte ischemia? Cardiac hypertrophy leads to myocyte ischemia in two ways. First, it decreases capillary density because there is more tissue per blood vessel. And second, the extra cardiac mass compresses the coronary arteries. Part 4. How does the body respond to the failing heart? Cardiac function is critical to maintain body function, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a cardiologist. So when the heart fails, the body attempts to compensate in a variety of ways. First, it increases effective circulating volume. Effective circulating volume refers to the circulating blood that perfuses the organs. And what determines this? Well, it's a hybrid of cardiac output, blood pressure, and blood volume. It makes sense that when heart failure causes a decrease in cardiac output, the body would try to compensate by increasing blood pressure and blood volume. This compensation helps to increase the effective circulating volume back toward normal, but at the expense of total body volume overload, leading to troublesome symptoms like edema and dyspnea. Next, heart failure activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and the sympathetic nervous system. In the short term, the body responds to heart failure and decreased effective circulating volume in two ways. First, it activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. From here on out, we'll refer to it as RAS. It does this to increase intravascular pressure through angiotensin-mediated vasoconstriction and aldosterone-mediated fluid retention. Second, the body activates the sympathetic nervous system, the SNS, to increase heart rate, contractility, and arterial vasoconstriction. Let's start by imagining what happens to the RAS system in response to decreased contractility. Well, a drop in cardiac contractility causes a drop in cardiac output, which decreases effective circulating volume. Reduced renal blood flow will activate the RAS by increasing renin secretion in the kidney, which triggers an increase in both angiotensin II and aldosterone. How does angiotensin II and aldosterone work together to compensate for reduced cardiac output? Well, angiotensin II constricts the peripheral blood vessels, raising arterial and venous blood pressure. It also stimulates renal sodium absorption. Since water follows sodium, this will raise the blood volume. Aldosterone raises blood volume by increasing renal reabsorption of sodium and water. This also causes blood pressure and effective circulating volume to increase. The result of increased blood volume and increased venous pressure is increased venous return to the heart. Venous return to the heart is essentially what we call cardiac preload. You can think of preload as how full is the tank. The fuller the tank, meaning the higher the preload, the more the heart can pump. Now let's discuss what happens to the sympathetic nervous system in heart failure. Decreased cardiac output leads to low blood pressure, which stimulates the carotid and aortic baroreceptors, leading to stimulation of the SNS. As the heart fails, there is greater volume of blood left in the heart after contraction. We call this a greater end systolic volume, which causes the heart to stretch. That muscle stretch also activates the SNS. An activated sympathetic nervous system has many effects on cardiac function, including increased heart rate through beta-1 receptors, attempts to increase cardiac contractility, and increased systemic vascular resistance through vasoconstriction. 
To summarize, in the face of decreased contractility, the SNS, RAS, and the kidneys act together to increase heart rate and increase preload, all of which attempt to improve the falling cardiac output. But these effects are not free of charge. There are adverse effects of these compensatory mechanisms. The increased blood volume may cause edema, a condition in which fluid is pushed into the lung alveoli, called pulmonary edema, or the tissues, peripheral edema. The resulting dyspnea and leg swelling are classic symptoms of heart failure. Another effect of the RAS and SNS activation is increased systemic vascular resistance by constricting arterioles. This also increases cardiac afterload. Increasing afterload makes it harder for the failing heart to pump out the blood, which is the exact opposite of what it needs. In the long run, chronic sympathetic nervous system activation worsens heart failure. It's like using fuel boosters in a car whose engine is already dying. Chronic sympathetic activity inhibits cardiomyocytes structurally and functionally. This can result in left ventricular dilation and systolic dysfunction from LV remodeling. All of that further decreases cardiac output and worsens the heart failure. Now, if that's not bad enough, chronic RAS activation also causes LV remodeling, likely through the effects of high aldosterone. Time for a clinical correlation. The drug classes used to treat heart failure are all attempting to combat these deleterious effects. Diuretics, which increase renal sodium and water excretion and lower the blood volume, are used for edematous patients with heart failure. Beta blockers, which inhibit the SNS, can prevent the long-term adverse remodeling of the LV. And RAS inhibition with ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or aldosterone antagonists are first-line drugs for systolic heart failure. All right, time for a quiz. How does RAS activation worsen heart failure? RAS activation worsens heart failure through increased fluid retention, which worsens congestion and results in further sympathetic nervous system activity, which increases afterload. RAS and SNS activation both lead to myocardial remodeling. Part 5. How can we explain heart failure using the pressure volume loop? Remember your trusty friend, the pressure volume loop? Well, it's time to return to this valuable tool to help us put together the hemodynamic concepts of cardiac output, preload, afterload, and even ejection fraction. This can be a bit tricky to do in your head, so you might want to pause and locate a pressure volume loop for visual reference. Let's start with systolic heart failure. Well, first you need to pick what is the primary insult or the starting point for systolic heart failure. Your choices are contractility and cardiac output more or less the same thing, preload, or afterload. All right, if you picked contractility, you picked correctly. On the pressure volume loop, contractility is represented by the dashed line at the top boundary of the loop. This line is called the ESPVR, or the end systolic pressure volume relationship. A decrease in contractility, which we see in systolic heart failure, results in this line becoming flatter or less steep. Remember, this contractility curve represents the pressure that can be generated for a given volume in the ventricle. So, it makes sense that a weaker heart generates less pressure for a given volume. Now, this decreased contractility has some other consequences. What do you think happens to end systolic volume? Well, a weaker heart means less blood is ejected with each contraction, so end systolic volume increases. 
Similarly, end diastolic volume increases. But the increase in end systolic volume is greater than the increase in the end diastolic volume. So <laughs> what happens to the stroke volume? If you remember, stroke volume is end diastolic volume minus end systolic volume. You can calculate it as the width of the pressure volume loop. So if you have systolic heart failure with an increase in end diastolic and an increase in end systolic volume, the overall stroke volume goes down. This decrease in stroke volume is why the body tries to increase the heart rate, so that even with the drop in stroke volume, the cardiac output might be maintained. Remember, cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. Overall, this means that the heart and the body are functioning at a higher point on the end diastolic pressure volume curve, the EDPVR, which is that lower boundary of the pressure volume loop. You might be tempted to treat low stroke volume by giving more fluid. But increasing fluid or preload just moves you to the right along this EDPVR curve. The tail of that curve rises steeply, meaning that for a small change in volume, there is a big change in pressure. That's why giving fluids to a patient with systolic heart failure who is pushed to the right on that end diastolic pressure volume curve can lead to pulmonary edema through increased hydrostatic pressures in the lungs. All right, now time to clear your head because we're going to switch gears and think about the PV loop for diastolic heart failure. Once again, let's start with what is the primary insult or the starting point for diastolic heart failure? Well, here, the main change is increased stiffness or impaired filling. This change is reflected on the PV loop by the end diastolic pressure volume relationship, EDPVR, the lower boundary curve. In diastolic heart failure, the stiffer heart means a greater rise in pressure for a small change in volume. This means a steeper rise or steeper slope on the EDPVR curve. So what happens as a result? Well, there's a decrease in the end diastolic volume because hypertrophy limits diastolic filling of the left ventricle. The contractility stays the same, so the slope of that ESPVR, the contractility curve, is unchanged. Now, an important detail. The LV diastolic pressure is now higher at any given volume. Why? Well, the hypertrophy and stiff ventricle mean that any amount of added volume increases the LV pressure, and so that lower curve, the EDPVR, shifts upward. The end result is that stroke volume again decreases, this time because of the lower end diastolic volume, which is why cardiac output falls in diastolic dysfunction, even though contractility is normal. All right, time for one more quiz question. What happens to the stroke volume in systolic heart failure? The stroke volume, calculated as end diastolic minus end systolic volume, decreases in systolic heart failure. All right, that's it for physiology of heart failure. Let's check your knowledge and see what we've learned today. First, what are the causes and types of cardiac hypertrophy? And how does it lead to ischemic injury? Cardiac hypertrophy is an enlargement of heart muscle. The two types are concentric hypertrophy, causing thickening of the ventricular walls through addition of sarcomeres side by side, and eccentric hypertrophy, causing dilation of the ventricular walls through addition of sarcomeres end to end. 
Hypertrophy decreases perfusion through decreased capillary to muscle ratio and through compression of coronary arteries. What are the hemodynamic consequences of ischemic injury to the myocardium? Ischemic injury leads to disorganized remodeling and fibrosis. This leads to decreased end diastolic volume and decreased contractility over time. Next, how does the failing heart impact the RAS and sympathetic nervous systems and through which signals? The body responds to the failing heart by activating the RAS system through low renal perfusion releasing renin and that leads to angiotensin II and aldosterone release. The sympathetic nervous system is activated through baroreceptors sensing low pressure. What are the hemodynamic consequences of RAS and SNS activation in heart failure? Activation of RAS and SNS lead to increased preload, increased heart rate, and increased afterload. These actions have adverse effects like edema from the increased preload and worsening of contractile function due to increased afterload. What is the major change to the PV loop for systolic heart failure? And then what about for diastolic heart failure? Systolic heart failure leads to decreased contractility represented by a less steep curve of the end systolic pressure volume relationship, ESPVR curve. Diastolic heart failure is due to a stiff heart, so the end diastolic pressure volume relationship curve, EDPVR, has a steeper curve. And we're done. Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's think back to your patient from the beginning of the episode. Your patient is presenting to clinic with long-standing hypertension, now with pulmonary and peripheral edema. What treatment will target his hemodynamic derangements? Devin has heart failure due to concentric left ventricular hypertrophy from long-standing hypertension. His increased preload is leading to pulmonary and peripheral edema. Diuretics will counteract this effect. You prescribe Devin high-dose diuretics, and when he returns to clinic three days later, he tells you, I'm peeing a ton, and my breathing is so much better. I even lost seven pounds. And that's our show. Thanks for sticking with me. If you liked this episode, send us a comment or give us a thumbs up. Until next time. <laughs>